Are you living for God in a pagan culture? Welcome to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., author and pastor-teacher at Shiloh Church in Jacksonville and Orange Park, Florida. Today, Pastor Charles will teach us how to obey God completely, to worship God reverently, and to trust God exclusively. Today's message, Living for God in a Pagan Culture. And now, here's Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. Father, we thank you for the blessings of this day. And we thank you for the privilege of walking today in the assurance of our salvation because of the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. We thank you for another opportunity to hear your word, to sing praises to your name, and to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to you. <clears throat> thank you for our children and youth leading us today. We pray for every home and family represented by the children participating on stage and behind the scenes today. And we pray for them all that they would grow as Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And we pray for the parents of our congregation that you would help us to train up our children in the way that they should go so that when they are old, they will not depart. Bless us as a church to come alongside these parents and families to facilitate the spiritual nurturing of the next generation to the glory of your name. We also pray today, Father, for President Donald Trump and for his wife, and for his children and family. We pray that you would put a hedge of protection around them. We pray for his leadership and his cabinet and his administration. We pray on the authority of your word that declares the king's heart is in the Lord's hand and you turn it as you order the flowing of the rivers. We pray, Father, that you would turn our president's heart toward truth and righteousness and justice and equity and mercy and compassion and goodness in the name of Jesus. We pray, Father, for restraining mercy and for governing grace. We pray for all who are in authority over us that we might live peaceful and quiet lives, godly in every way and pleasing to you. We, we pray because we know, Lord, that the change our society needs doesn't happen at the White House or Congress or the Pentagon 
or even by marching in the streets. We believe your word that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, you will hear about it from heaven. You will forgive our sins. You will heal our land. We know that's a promise to Israel, but the principles apply to us. And we are asking, for Christ's sake, Lord, send a revival in our land. And we're not just praying, Lord, for the streets and for the community and for the society and for the culture and for the nation. We're praying, send a revival and start with us. Create within us a clean heart. And renew within us the right spirit. Would you work to that end today as we study your word, be our teacher? Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Give us understanding, and we will obey your word and keep it with our whole heart. In Jesus' name, the church said amen and amen. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, and then you may be seated. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning at verse number 1, the reading of God's word is this. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you shall do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statues, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Amen. You may be seated. This is God's Word. I want to label the message, Living for God in a Pagan Culture. Living for God in a Pagan Culture. The children of Israel are now poised to enter the promised land and take possession of the land that God had promised to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are finally fulfilling a journey that should have been complete decades ago. However, Because of sin, unbelief, and rebellion amongst God's people, 
Israel is punished by God, causing them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire unbelieving generation died. Now, their children and grandchildren are poised to finally enter into the land of Canaan. Moses, who will not be permitted to cross over with them, now prepares them to cross over. This is what we find in the book of Deuteronomy. This extended book primarily consists of three sermons, three final messages, if you will, from Moses to the children of Israel as they prepare to cross over the Jordan and into the promised land of Canaan. The first of these messages reviews God's dealings with them in the past. The second, which is the bulk of the book, addresses how they are to live for God under His commandments in their present situation. And the book ends with a final message that points them on to the future. The first of Moses' messages to the people is recorded in Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 4. Chapters 1 through 3 are a review of God's dealings with Israel in the past. He reminds them of what God has done to brace and prepare them for what God will do. But now chapter 4 shifts the focus of this first message to the present implications of God's past dealings. This is more than just a history lesson in chapters 1 through 3. In a real sense, Moses has been saying that you must remember what God has done in the past in order to move forward by faith into the future. And so in chapters 1 through 3, Moses reviews God's dealings with Israel in the past, and chapter 4 begins in verse 1 with Moses saying, and now. God is who God is. God has done what God has done. And now, in light of who God is and what God has done, His people are to live a certain way as they cross over the Jordan and take possession of the land of Canaan. This is all the more important because the promised land is not an empty land. They will take possession of the land of Canaan as they deal with and drive out the current inhabitants of the land. And thus the book of Deuteronomy, which is a reminder and restatement of God's covenant with Israel that calls them to live for Him as they move in among pagan, unbelieving, godless people. 
The specific commandments of God will be presented started in chapter 5 and going forward. Here in chapter 4, there is a general call to spiritual faithfulness. Here he will, in general terms, tell them how to live for God in the midst of a pagan or unbelieving culture. And in a word, what he says to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4 is this. Be different. I can give you the chapter in one sentence. Here it is. People who know God must not live like people who do not know God. Can I say that again? People who know God must not live like people who do not know God. When God's white sheep become dingy gray, all black sheep feel more comfortable. To live for God in an unbelieving world, Moses will say, you must be different. This was ancient instructions from Moses to Israel as they entered into the promised land of Canaan, but how much more do we still need these instructions today? We live in a society that increasingly refuses to know God. It's not that the knowledge of God is unavailable, John says, in John 3, verse 18, this is the condemnation that light has come and men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. People refuse to know God. And if we're going to make a difference for God in the culture, in the society, in the time, in the land, in the city, in the community where we live, we must be different. Jesus speaks of this in descriptive language in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, where he exhorts his disciples to live as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Those images call for penetration with distinction. He says, as disciples, you can't disengage from the culture. Instead, I want, you to, I want you to penetrate the culture. I want you to influence the culture. And for that to happen, you must engage with the culture. Right? Light must penetrate the darkness, salt must penetrate the food. You can't retreat from the world and make a difference. You've got to engage the culture 
But while you are engaging, there must be penetration with distinction. You know what I mean by that? I mean, dark light does no good for anybody. And unsalty salt, Jesus says, is good for nothing except to be tossed out and trampled under men's feet. We've got to engage the culture for the kingdom of heaven, but to make a difference, we must be different than the world around us. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light so shine then before men that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. People who know God must not live like people who do not know God. That's it. I could quit preaching now. That's the sermon. I'm not going to quit preaching. I got a ways to go, but, but that's the point of Deuteronomy chapter 4. We must be different. And in this general call to faithfulness recorded in Deuteronomy 4, we find three ways for us to live for God in a pagan or unbelieving God-ignoring, God-hating culture. Here's the first way. Obey God completely. Obey God completely. Obey God completely. That's the first major section of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, exhorts us to owe that, that God demands obedience. Verses 9 through 14 tells us that God deserves obedience. First, he says God demands obedience. Verse 1, Moses says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Notice the first two instructions he gives here for these people to live different than the people in the world around them. Here's the first one, a very simple one. Listen. To live different, you must think different. And to think different, you must hear God's Word. Romans 10 verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So, that's the first instruction. Listen. But then, Note the second instruction. Not only listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you today, but also do them. Hearing and doing go together. James chapter 1 verse 22 says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. To hear God's word puts us under divine obligation to obey God's Word. The parent tells the child to do something. The child does not do what the parent says. And the parent says to the child, did you hear what I said? Not, not did you do it, did you hear 
Because hearing one in authority obligates obedience. And here, this is simply what Moses says to the people in this chapter. For you to be different than the world around you, it's as simple and as difficult as this, church. Hear God's Word and do what it says. <laughs> Look at the rest of the verse. You better listen to the Word and do it so that you may live. Wow. He means that literally. If you don't want to die, you better obey God's Word. And if you want to be able to be blessed in your life, go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. You must hear and obey the Word of God. And notice how he emphasizes this call to complete obedience in verse 2. You shall not add to the Word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I have commanded you. Not only must God's Word be obeyed, but we are to obey God's Word completely and fully and absolutely. Verse 2 says that means two things. It means on one hand, do not add to God's Word your thoughts and opinions and philosophies and traditions and rituals do not carry the same authority as God's Word. Everything you think and do should be subject to the Word of God. Do not add to God's Word. Proverbs 30 verse 6 says, do not add to His words lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. But then verse 2 also says, don't take away from his word. Here we are just reminded that you, you don't have, and I don't have, editorial authority over God's word. How, how the church needs that today? We don't have the right to take out of Scripture the parts we don't agree with. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We must not take away from God's word. God's word is not some buffet or cafeteria where you review what's presented and choose what you like and disregard the rest. God's Word is Big Mama's house. You eat what she cooked or you don't eat. Verses 3 and 4 warn us about the consequences of disobedience by pointing to what happened at Baal Peor. Baal means ruler. It is a name for deity and it was the name of the Canaanite gods, plural. They were named by either their attributes or their locations. They were localized gods, which further proves they were no gods at all. Verses 3 and 4 is about the god, the Baal, at Peor. And it refers to an incident that takes place in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. But to understand Numbers chapter 25, 
you need to read Numbers chapter 22 through 24. There is a king who wants to bring down the people of God, and King Balak, to bring down the people of God, hires a prophet named Balaam. This is already getting off to a bad start when the prophet is for hire. Balaam is hired to curse the people of Israel, but every time he tries to curse God's people, God instead makes him bless his people. This, again, friends, is why you don't need to be worrying about who doesn't like you or who's after you or who's against you. If you are in the will of God, He will make people who are against you be a blessing to you. But Balaam is shrewd. He recognizes that if he cannot curse the people of God, he can set them up to curse themselves, which is what happens in Numbers chapter 25 where the Moabite people hold a worship service. Yeah, but their worship service is a party. Yeah, the party is an orgy. And they invite the people of Israel who joined the Moabites in their idolatry and immorality. Numbers 25 says one of the brothers even showed back up at the camp of Israel with his new date and tried to move her in. God in his righteous anger put to death all those who engaged in the corruption and perversion of the Moabites It was 24,000 people who died. God doesn't usually judge that severely and that quickly and that specifically. God is a merciful God is how this chapter ends. But, But God was making a point that day that Israel now needs to remember and that we need to remember today. That you can't walk in the word and play with the world at the same time. Am I making sense here? I grew up in church. My mama was the minister of music. My daddy was the pastor. I grew up in church. And I grew up in church during the day where I didn't get a vote about whether or not, as a child, I was going to church and whether or not I was going to participate in church. There were a lot of things as a child growing up in church I was not allowed to participate. And amazingly, the reason why we couldn't participate in most of the stuff was for the same reason. It was worldly. Couldn't go certain places because it was worldly. You couldn't go to certain places on certain days because that was worldly. Music was worldly. Movies were worldly. Some of you grew up like that. And you, you was like, getting out of your parents' house was like 
parole. I just, I mean, Lord, I'm just free. And I understand, but have you thought about it? That there are some of us who get what I'm saying. Where, where you grew up and, and everything was worldly. But, but now, and that wasn't too long ago, but now, nothing is worldly. Everything goes. There is no distinction between the way people who claim to know God live and, and the way people who don't know God live. And, and Moses is just saying, how can you make a difference for God if you are no different than the people in the world who don't know God? See, verse 5, I taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. I love what Moses is saying here. I'm giving you commands, but they ain't my commands. Don't try to fight the postman. I'm just delivering the mail. He says, this is God's word, and you need to, verse 6, keep it and do it. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, peoples that don't know God, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? Listen to what Moses is saying here. Moses is saying, if you will obey God's word completely, you can influence the culture without arguing about theology. The people that don't even know God will see your wisdom. See, you got a God that answers prayer. See how you live by the righteous rules of God, and they will see that there is a difference in serving God without you having to get in doctrinal debates. He's saying you wouldn't have to yell so loud if you just lived different. God deserves this obedience, verses 9 through 14. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget. I don't have time for that now. We'll get to it throughout Deuteronomy. There's no pulpit excuse for poor exposition, but one of the dominating themes of Deuteronomy is not just hear and do, but then don't forget God. Because most time, rebellion in our lives don't start out, doesn't start out with outright rebellion. It's just we, we allow other stuff to become more important. 
my job, my dating life, my entertainment, my pleasure, my fun, my goals, my career, my fa- We allow other things to become more important, and in the process, we forget God. Don't forget the things that you've seen, because if you forget, they will depart from your heart. You need to remember them, and not just remember them. Look at the next phrase. Make them known to your children and your children's children. The primary responsibility for spiritual development is laid on parents. And it doesn't matter how many programs a church has, it really won't make a difference if in the home they don't see that you love God and you live what you talk. Here he is saying your children and your grandchildren need to know. You're telling them about family history. But you need to make sure you are also indoctrinating your children to know how God has worked spiritually. He says, tell them about the day y'all met God at Horeb. That's the rest of the paragraph. (laughs) At Mount Sinai, you met with God. He's referring to something that took place in Exodus chapter 19. God brought the people out of Israel, brought them through the wood. And in their first major meeting with God, God says, sanctify the people. And then in three days, I'm going to meet with the people and tell them to meet me at the foot of the mountain. Make sure you tell them, don't touch the mountain. Because they'll fall dead if they touch the mountain. But tell them, come near the mountain, and in three days, I'm going to show up and meet. And now, can you imagine the people are excited? God came to Egypt and delivered us, and now we're finally going to get to meet this God. This is great. And God shows up for the meeting with clouds and rain and lightning and thunder and darkness. And the people say to Israel, I mean to Moses, they say, uh, Moses, we got, a, we got a better idea. From now on, you just go on up in that mountain and talk to God and just come back and tell us what he said. But God showed up in that first meeting so dramatically at Mount Horeb so that Israel would never think that God is, you know, just the man upstairs. This is the living God. And he showed up to speak. And verse 12 says, he spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments, which he wrote on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you these statutes and rules that you may do them in the land that you are going over to possess. God deserves obedience because God alone is a God who speaks. Listen to Moses trying to tell them, the things I'm teaching you are not my ideas. 
I'm just teaching you what God commanded. The God that you met at Horeb is the living God who speaks and He demands and deserves complete obedience. Number one, to live for God in a pagan culture, then he says, obey God completely. But secondly, worship God reverently. Worship God reverently. That's verses 15 through 31. Verse 15 says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Going back to the Horeb experience he just mentioned, he says, be very careful now and remember, you saw no form on that day when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. You, you saw no form, you just heard a voice. Now, now watch what God is doing here. Because you know what we want? We want to see God do something. But God here is de-emphasizing what they see and emphasizing what they hear. God is a speaking God. And more than seeing God do something, he says, you need to hear God say something. This is why it is important for us to gather publicly and corporately as we do here. To be under the teaching of God's divine word. Well, I can study for myself at home without church. And most people who say that don't study at home without church. We need to be under the teaching of God's Word and among God's people in fellowship around the Word. Because this is how God builds our faith. Not, not by seeing what He does, but by hearing what He says. And this is not just an Old Testament phenomenon. In the Gospels, Jesus shows up with signs and miracles and wonders. He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. He sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit through the apostles continues signs and wonders and miracles in Acts. But after that, you got 22 more books in the New Testament after the Gospels and Acts. You know what those books are? Letters that are to be read to churches. God deems it more important that you hear what he says, not just see him do something. We, 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 we want to see him. But God says, I'm not big on this whole seeing business. Why? Look at the text. He says, you need to remember that you saw no form. You just heard a voice at Mount Horeb. So that verse 16, you will beware lest you act corruptly by making carved images for yourself. Do you get it? See, if, you, if I emphasize seeing, you are going to get preoccupied trying to recreate what you see. And you will restrict God. You will limit God. You will dishonor God. The first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me, teaches 
that you must worship the right God. The second of the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself carved images, teaches that you must worship the right God the right way. You are not free to shape what you think God looks like. I wish I had a praying church here. We, we know God by, by divine revelation, not by human imagination. Don't you try to figure out what I look like. This is what reverent worship is all about. It just means let God be God. No, no carved images. Here's why. Watch what he says. Because if you make carved images, this is where you're going to start. You're going to make a figure in the likeness of a male or a female. Did you get what he's saying there? If you, if you start carving images representing what you think God looks like, you inevitably will create a God that looks like you. You remember a few years ago, there was an animated movie about Moses called The Prince of Egypt. Val Kilmer voiced Moses in that movie. What many people did not know is that he also voiced God in the movie. And I read an article when the movie was coming out where the reporter asked him about why they chose for him to voice both Moses and God, to which Kilmer replied by saying, I guess because for most people, the voice of God sounds a lot like their own voice. This is the concern of Moses in the text. D don't you try to make an image of God because you're prone to try to make God look like you. And then while you're at it, verse 17, don't try to make God look like any animal on the earth, any bird in the air, verse 18, any creeping thing on the ground, or any fish in the sea. Verse 19, and while you at it, don't raise your eyes to heaven and try to make God look like something of the sun and the moon and the stars and bow down to that. Stop, stop trying to shape God. Just let God be God. Because when you try to carve an image, you, you, you put God in a box. You limit God. You restrict God. This is what happened when Israel made a golden calf, remember? What is that, Exodus 32? It really isn't a golden calf. It's a golden bull, a charging bull. This is an image taken from Egypt where the bull represented strength. By making a golden calf or bull, Aaron was trying to say that the God that brought us out of Egypt is a strong God. When he marches, nobody can stop him. 
He said, well, the image, the, the, the golden calf that says God is strong. What, what, what's the problem with God? God with that? Here's his problem. What about his goodness? What about his wisdom? What about his mercy? What about his holiness? And you say, well, HB, you, you're being ridiculous. No one image can fully represent all of that. Bingo. That's the point. Nothing we make can fully represent what God is. And so he says, don't make any images. Verse 20, he said, just remember this. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be his own people as you are to this day. I love that. Listen to what he's saying. The problem with making God look like sun, moon, and stars, and animals, and fish, and birds, or you, is that it gives the wrong impression about God because none of those things can bring you out. These things can't bring you out. They couldn't bring you out of Egypt. They couldn't make you their people. They couldn't give you a land. Only God can redeem. And so stop trying to make, stop trying to carve God into the God of your race. Or the God of your demographic. Or the God of your political affiliation. Or the God of your nation. Or the God of your cause. Just let God be God. Am I making sense? In verse 21 and 22, Moses, being a real servant leader, who not only leads by example, but also leads by his failures, Moses says to the people, don't be like me. In Numbers 20, God tells Moses to speak to the rock so that water can come out to slack the thirst of his people, and Moses, in anger, smoked the rock instead of speaking to it. Water came out, but God punished Moses because by that act, he made himself look big and God looked small. Listen to Moses saying, because I did that, verse 22, listen to the sober statement of verse 22, I must die in this land. And I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Don't be like me. Let God be God. Two reasons why you ought to let God be God. One in verse 24, one in verse 31. First reason why you ought to let God be God is because, verse 24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. <laughs> playing with God is like playing with fire. God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? Look at the next phrase. He's a what kind of God? Jealous God. Not 
jealousy as we know it as sinners, where we are jealous over something that belongs to another. God's jealousy is holy zeal for that which is His. God, that is, is a faithful husband who refuses to share his wife. He's a jealous God. And that's why, that's the next paragraph. He says, when, when your father's children and children's children have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke his anger, I, I promise you from heaven and earth as a witness, you will perish from the land you are going over to the Jordan to take. He's saying, God is bringing you in, but when you get in and start enjoying the good life, don't get new. Once you get there and start carving images and worshiping, in a real sense, <laughs> Moses is saying that true spiritual worship is actually basic dating etiquette. Basic dating etiquette is that you dance with the one who brought you. He says, when you get into the land, don't be, don't be trying to get on the dance floor with no idol God that couldn't help you when you was in Egypt. I wish I had a praying church here. Don't, 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 don't try to dance with a God that couldn't help you when you were in the wilderness. Don't try to dance with a God that could not bring you over into a blessed land. Because I'll scatter you. You want to be like the nations? I'll treat you like the nations. And scatter you, which is what happened in the Babylonian Empire. Consuming Israel and taking the people of God captive. They were scattered. It is what happened at the destruction of Jerusalem, not long after the resurrection of Jesus. And even though there is now an official state of Israel, the bulk of the Jewish people are scattered among the nations, predicted in Deuteronomy 4. This is what happens when you don't let God be God. God is a jealous God. But look at verse 31. I'm glad he's not just a jealous God. He's also a merciful God. <laughs> Go back up to verse 29. He says, I'll scatter you if you disobey. But from there, if you seek the Lord your God, with, you'll find him. If you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is a what kind of God? He's a merciful God. Mercy means He holds back what you deserve. Quit, 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 quit complaining that you ain't getting what you think you deserve. You don't want God to give you what you deserve. It's called mercy. In fact, verse 31 gives an even better definition of mercy. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget you. You know what that is? That's the explanation 
for why you are sitting here looking at me and I'm looking at you. Mercy. Mercy means in spite of what you did, he didn't leave you, he didn't destroy you, and he didn't forget you. Don't look at your circumstances for evidence of that. Run to the cross and look at Jesus who died at the cross for our sins so that God could give us another chance. One more thing quickly and I'm finished. Obey God completely. Worship God reverently. Thirdly, trust God exclusively. Thank you, brother. Trust God exclusively. And so for the bulk of the chapter, There has been a call to obedience and a call to worship. But now at the end of the chapter, Moses will say that in the final analysis, worship and obedience are really just matters of trust. That's the question on the table today. Who do you trust? Who who is your confidence in? Who is pushing your swing? That's the troublesome part of so many things we've seen on the news this weekend. I'm not talking about merely presidential actions and congressional debates and political maneuvering and media proclamations and citywide marches. That that stuff is not really what troubles me. I, I don't think you... You'll only get disappointed if you expect unsaved people to do saved stuff. But what bothers me this weekend is to watch people who claim to know God acting like hope is based on who's in the Oval Office. People that claim to know God, who, who act like political authority or, or civil disobedience is the only way to make a difference. The Bible says in Psalm 103 verse 19 that God has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Trip over who's in the Oval Office if you know who sits on heaven's throne. You need to go back and read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? 
And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against God and his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds asunder and loose our chains from them. And while the nations and the peoples and the kings and the rulers are rising up against God, marching in the streets and pol- politicizing and making decisions against God, Psalm 2 verse 4 says, he that sits in the heaven is laughing. That's the God I serve. Wait a minute. I made you and you're going to get rid of me? Ha, 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 ha. The question is, who do you trust? Beginning at verse 32, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping up. Moses gives a trust test. There are some essay questions, and you got to fill out the answer. You don't have to turn in your paper. Grade your own paper. And determine who do you trust. Ready for the test? Look at verse 32. Here's the test, Moses says. Ask now of the days in the past. This is a history test. How far back we going? Before you? And since the day that God created man and the earth, how big a test is this? From one end of heaven to the other. Ask, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or has ever even been heard of, Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you heard and lived to tell about it? Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself out of another nation by trials and signs and wonders and war and mighty hand and outstretched arms and great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? No, verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. Underline this next phrase. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And then on earth, he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, he drove out from before you the nations that were greater than you and mightier than you. And then he brought you in and gave you their land as an inheritance as it is to this day. Verse 39. Know therefore, I love this next phrase, and and not just know it, lay it on your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Read these last four words of verse 39 with me. There is no other. There is no God like our God. (laughs) 
God is worthy of your obedience. God is worthy of your worship. And God is worthy of your trust. Let me ask one more time. Who do you trust? Oh, this has happened and the others happened and the others going on. What are we going to do? I'm glad you came to church because I'm going to tell you what to do. And your pastor being your pastor, I'm going to tell you what to do by quoting Scripture. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on what you think you know. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. God be praised. Thanks for listening to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., If you would like more resources from Pastor Charles or to support this ministry, he can be reached online at www.hbcharlesjr.com. That's hbcharlesjr.com. Join us again for Cutting It Straight, and God bless.